Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? The Taru Ushti by Nigel Neal In the far-off days before the preachers and the schoolmasters came, the island held a great many creatures besides people and beasts. The place swarmed with monsters. A man would think twice before answering his cottage door on a windy night in dread of a visit from his own ghost. The high mountain roads rang in the darkness with the thunderous tiffs of the buggins, which had unspeakable shapes and heads bigger than houses, while a walk along the seashore after the sun had set was to invite the misty appearance of a taru ushti in the likeness of a monstrous bull ready to rush the beholder into the sea and devour him. At harvest time the hairy troll man, the finoderie, might come springing out of his elder tree to assist in the reaping to the farmer's dismay, for the best intentioned of the beings were no more helpful than interfering neighbours, and likely to finish the day pulling the thatch off the house or trying to teach the hens to swim. What would the little people, the fairies themselves, so numerous that they were under everybody's feet turning milk sour and jamming locks and putting the fire out, and with witches waiting at every other bend in the road with their evil eye, ready to paralyse the horses, ordinary people led a difficult life. It was necessary to carry charm herbs or beads, and to remember warding off rhymes that had been taught in early childhood. As the generations went by and people took to speaking English on polite occasions, the old creatures grew scarcer. By the time the travellers from the packet boats had spread the story about a girl named Victoria being the new queen of the English, their influence was slipping. At night people put out milk for the fairies, more from habit than fear, half guessing it would be drunk by the cat. If they heard a midnight clamour from the hen-house, they reached for a musket, not a bunch of hawthorn, but back hair could still rise on a dark mountain road. From the gradual loss of the old knowledge came dependence on the wise men and women. Charles E. Quilliam was one of these. He was the fattest man on the island, said those who had travelled all over it and could speak with authority. He carried his enormous body with special care, like a man with a brimful jug, but he still stuck indoors and caused chairs to collapse, and people meeting him on a narrow path had to climb the hedge to let him pass. The right of way was always Charles's. His fatness, coupled with a huge black beard, left little shape to his face, but his eyes were quick. Above them, like a heathery ledge, ran a single unbroken line of eyebrow, which denoted second sight. Whatever question was asked, he would be able to answer it, even if he said nothing. The expression in his eyes showed that he knew but considered the questioner would be better in ignorance. It was Charlesy who'd had a vision of the potato blight crossing to Ireland in a black cloud, but he kept the frightening secret to himself until long afterwards, when the subsequent famine was common talk and nobody could be alarmed by what he had seen. Old secret customs, birth charms and death charms and rites for other dark days, Charlesy's big head held them all. Folk in trouble might set out for the minister's house, think better of it, 
and go to find Charlesy where he sat on a hump of earth outside his cottage, his thick fingers busy with scraps of coloured wool and feathers. Ever since he became too fat for other work, his secret knowledge had supported him, and gifts of food from grateful clients kept his weight creeping up. Many a winter night he would be at the centre of a fireside gathering. Charles's guttural hoarse voice could hold a packed cottage in frightened suspense for hours as it laid horror upon horror. Personal experience of dealing with witches was his chief subject. Most of his stories had little point which made them all the more uncanny and likely. People went home in groups after an evening with Charlesy. Apart from the witches, he only had one open enemy. This was a Scottish peddler named Macray. The man had lost a leg in the Crimea and called himself a Calvinist. He sneered at the old beliefs and tried to tell his own war experiences instead, but people were chary of listening in case Charles he got to know. They bought Duncan Macray's buttons and shut the door quickly. The little Scot hated it. At hardly a single house in the fat man's territory could he get himself invited inside for a free meal. Even the news he brought from the towns was received with suspicion, when at all, as if he'd made it up on the road. He would have cut the district out altogether, except that he sold more elastic there than anywhere else. One hot afternoon in the late summer, the peddler sweated up the hill toward the village. A dense sea fog had smothered the sun. The air was close, and his pack wearied him. Time after time he had to rest his wooden leg. Duncan McRae had news. A titbit he'd picked up before he left town particularly pleased him, and had gone down well in two villages already, for it was an item that people would be able to put to the proof themselves later on. A new machine was to be tested on the English side of the channel, less than thirty miles away. It was said to be able to warn ships in fog. Macrae hastened. He'd heard that when the new foghorn, as they called it, was tested, people on the island might be able to hear it blowing faintly. Today's weather seemed very suitable for such an experiment, but even if nothing happened, surely this story at least had enough interest to call for hospitality. At the top of the hill he leaned on a hedge to ease his leg. The air was heavy and the quietness a relief after the clumping of his iron-tipped stump in the grit. He held his breath, listening. Far away there was a moan. He pulled himself up the hedge and faced towards the fog-blanketed sea. The sound came again faint and eerie, a growl so low-pitched that it could hardly be heard at all. It could only be one thing. Excitedly, McRae slid down the hedge and straightened his pack. Within ten minutes, bursting with news, he'd reached the first outlying cottage door. He rattled the latch and pushed it open. Hello there, he said. Do you hear the new invention yonder? There was silence. No one at home. He hurried out and on to the next fuchsia-hedged cabin. Hello, missus. Do you hear the wonders that's going on across the water? No one to be seen. Macrae frowned. He was at the top end of the village now, looking down the winding street as it sloped towards the sea. There was nobody moving in it and no sound. Even the blacksmith's forge was silent. 
The peddler shouted, Where is everybody? Is there no single body up the day? His voice went quietly away into the mist. Charles Equilliam had been in his cottage when they came for him. He was threading a dried call on a neckband as a cure against shipwreck, working indoors because the damp grieved his chest. People came clustering round his door, muttering, Come in or go out, called Charlesy. He pricked his some. Devil take it, this call is like the hide of a crocodile. They saw that he did not hear what they heard. He suffered at times from deafness. At last, old Jew and Jeg persuaded him to come outside. Charlesy was surprised to see nearly all the village assembled at his door. Just listen, Charlesy, said old Jewan. The frightened faces seemed to be expecting something from him. Well, what is it at all? he said after a moment. Oh, listen, do! Then Charlesy heard it. A sound that might have been made by a coughing cow far away on a calm night. Some beast that wants to look into, he decided. Is that all? What have us got into everybody? Old Juan's face was too horrified to express anything. He pointed. Them sounds is from out at sea, he said. There was a shocked murmur from the villagers at the speaking of the words. Charlesy made no move. His little eyes sharpened. Tell us what it is, Charlesy. What have we got to do? Oh, and it's far worse down by the water. The twist of the land smothers it here. Without a word, Charles Equilliam turned back into his cottage. The crowd were alarmed by his stillness. When he reappeared, he had his big blackthorn walking stick in one hand. In the other was a bunch of dried leaves. I'm going down there for a sight, he said. Anybody that wants to can come. He set ponderously off. For a little space they hesitated, whispering among themselves. Old Juan licked his lips and went after Charlesy. When he looked round, a few dozen paces down the shore path, he saw the rest following behind him in a body on the sandy track. Charlesy stopped for breath. Old Juan caught him up. You're right, it's clearer down here. Old Juan spoke slowly. Charlesy, I'm hoping it won't put bad luck on me, but I was the first that heard it, he swallowed, remembering. Down in the tide, digging for lugworms. Ah, said Charlesy, he grunted. Let's get nearer. As they came over the low brow of the foreshore, where the yellow sandy grass ended and the pebbles began, the sound hit them. It travelled straight in along the surface of the water, still very far away, but plainer to the ear. So unnatural that it shocked everybody afresh, it ended with a throaty gulp. Charlesy made his way slowly across the stones, picking his way with the stick among the puddles. They all followed in silence towards the water's edge. There he stood, leaning and listening. Again and again and again the distant cry came from the fog, and they shivered. Old Juan made to speak, but Charlesy silenced him. Yes, said Charlesy, turning back casually. It's a Tarushti. A woman screamed and had a hand clapped across her mouth. People drew back hastily from the creamy water's edge. What'll happen? whispered old Juan. Charlesy's single brow bent in a frown. Queer thing for it to come in the daylight, he said. It goes to prove such creatures is no fancy. He turned to the crowd and addressed them. Now, listen all, it's a taro ushti out yonder. Hush now, hush. It's in trouble over something. Maybe lost and calling out to another one. 
Aye, it's mate, likely, said Juan. Charles ignored him. For all that they're not of this world, they can get lost in thick fog like any other creature. It's a terrible long way off at present, so the best thing to do is to be quiet and go home and do nothing to draw it this way. And I'll tell you what he's like. They look like a tremendous big black bull, but the feet is webbed. And in the old days, they've had many a person eaten, so nobody must come down here tonight for fear of the fog clearing, and it's seeing him. There's no telling what it might do if it got up to the village. He showed the bunch of herbs in his left hand. Now everybody go home quiet, and I'll see about laying a charm on the water. Keep all the children indoors. He sat on a low rock near the tide as they went. Peering back at him, they saw him wave the leaves back and forth in his hand. He seemed to be chanting something. In the sight of old Juan, the last across the sandy bluff, he finished by tossing the bunch into the sea and turning abruptly away. Charlesy laboured up the track without a look behind. The lowing sound still continued. He felt satisfied with what he'd done, but was checking the right over in his mind to make sure. Ahead, the last stragglers reached the safety of the village. But when he came to the houses... Charles, he found people still talking in small groups. Look here, I told you to get the children out of sight, he said, and it'd be just as well if everybody kept themselves. A commotion was going on further up the street. What the devil is it now, Charles, he shouted. He felt privileged to make a noise. Old Juan hobbled towards him. It's that Scotch peddler, he said. He's got some nonsense tale. Oh, you'd better give him a word, Charlesy. He'll be putting foolishness in their heads. Charles, he scowled. He came ponderously to where Duncan McRae sat on a wooden bench outside a cottage. People parted before him, but he felt that there was a questioning quality in their respect. What's going on here? he said. The little Scot grinned up, hands tucked comfortably behind his head. Oh, I've been sitting here wondering if you'd all fled away into a far country. I was thinking you had a nice day for it, he said. What are you blethering about? Have you got a straitjacket on yon sea monster? The peddler chuckled. Look him in the eye, man. That's what they say. Look him in the eye and put salt on his tail. I've a new brand of table salt in my park. Would you care to try some? They began to laugh loudly. Charles's face was purple. Is the fella crazy or what? Shut up, will you? He seized the little man by the hair and shook him violently. Stop laughing. Haven't I ordered quiet? The peddler squealed as he tried to escape. His wooden legs skidded and he thrashed about. The staring villagers broke into explanation. He's got a tale that the noises is from a machine, Charlesy. A one in a fog for the ships. That's what he said. There was dead silence, apart from the spluttering breath of the dazed peddler. Charlesy slowly released him. They were all tense watching Charles's face. It showed no expression. He might have been thinking or working something out, or studying his victim, or listening. Juan, he said at last, pointedly. Yes, Charlesy, can you still hear it? They all waited, listening. The noise at sea had stopped. No, Charlesy, no, it's gone. It was Charles's moment. He glowered down at the wretched peddler and took a chance. It's gone because I stopped it, he said. 
I put a charm on the water to send it away. Now, tell me something, my little Scotchman. Could I have done that if it was only some kind of steam engine across the water? He felt the awe all around him. You poor ignorant cuss. You're not worth minding. I pity you, said Charlesy kindly. Oh, look here. You go down to the town and they'll tell you there. Charlesy gave a laugh. It began deep inside him where there was plenty of room and rose into a throaty bellow. In the town, oh, oh my, Charlesy was overcome. You better stick to selling buttons, master. He heard it in the town and he believed it. In the town where they washing themselves from morning to night and where they have to give each other a little bit of cardboard to know who they are and get special knives out for to eat a fish. There was a fella in the town, thought he was Napoleon of the French. Oh, yes, the town. That's where they know everything, I'm sure. There was a howl of laughter. It was a complete victory. The peddler protested and raged against their laughter, but he could do nothing to stop it. Only Charles he could do that by a finger to his lips and a warning nod at the sea. Charlesy watched McRae go stumping away in a fury without selling anything. His face was dark and thoughtful. Chewin, he said loudly enough for others to hear and with great conviction, this has given me an idea. You know, the sound of a Tarushti's voice would be a good thing to imitate as a warning to the ships. It needs a frightening sort of noise. I've a mind to suggest that to the English government. In fact, I will. I'll send the letter now and describe how it can be done. He went indoors where he felt weak now that the crisis was over, praying for the silence to continue, but ready to make another journey to the beach with a bunch of herbs. His luck held. The foghorn did not sound again that day, or again for more than a week. When at last it did, Charlesy reassured the village and bade them observe the sound. They would find, he said, that it was copied from the cry of the Tarawushti according to a simple invention of his own. They listened, and it was so. He was often to be seen after that, sitting outside his home on foggy days, listening to the far-off hooting with a critical expression. When he went indoors, they said it was to write to the English government again, advising them. Charles's fame as an inventor spread. He was rumoured to be working on a device for closing gates automatically and another to condense water from clouds. Even strangers came to the village to have their ailments or troubles charmed away or to undergo his new massage treatment. But Duncan McRae did not sell another inch of elastic in the whole district. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? So that was the Taru Ushti by Nigel Neal. It was published in 1949. I've done a couple of Nigel Neal's um, stories before. I've done um, The Pond, I think, uh, which is a small one, short one like this. And I did um, My Nuke, which is um, quite scary, poltergeisty type story. This wasn't that scary, was it? Um, it's from a book called, I'll read you about him first, of course. Nigel Neal, born 1922, died 2006, was born in Barrow-in-Furness, then in Lancashire. 
uh, but spent much of his early life on the Isle of Man, where his father was the editor of a daily newspaper. I do believe his family were Manx. After initially training to become a lawyer on the island, Neil, known as Tom to his family and friends, enrolled at RADA. So RADA's a, an acting, a very famous and prestigious um, academy for actors with ambitions to become an actor. At the same time, he was writing short stories and these would form the basis of his first book, Tomato Kane, 1949, which is very famous, which would go on to win the Somerset Maugham Award in 1950. Following this, Neil gave up acting to write full-time, and in 1951, he became one of the first staff writers at the BBC. It was here that he would form a partnership with the producer Rudolf Cartier, which resulted in groundbreaking television drama milestones such as The Quatermass Experiment, 1953. Come on, you must know that. Um, 1984, and Quatermass and the Pit, 1950. These are fantastic. They still are fantastic, uh, if you can see them. They're on YouTube. He broke into cinema production with adaptations of the John Osborne plays Look Back in Anger, 1958, and The Entertainer. He continued to work for the BBC up until the early 1970s, when he left the corporation to work with ITV and the TV company on such projects as the horror anthology series Beasts and a final Quatermass series in 1979. He was married to Judith Kerr, author of The Tiger Who Came to Tea, and the couple had two children. So this is from a book. It's one of the British Library. You may know that the British Library are doing a fantastic and sterling work at the moment. They're going through all their records because when you, um, and it always has been the way, when you um, write a, publish a book in the UK, it always used to be the case that you had to send a copy to the British Library, and so they had copies of all these books. So they had copies of like millions of stories. And they've gone through it, and, and I've got a subscription now every month, and they produce a new uh, volume of Uncanny Tales from their archive. Now, this wasn't that uncanny, but it belongs to a volume called Celtic Weird Tales of Wicked Folklore and Dark Mythology, edited by Johnny Maines. And they usually write a very useful um, introduction to it. So this, this has a number of stories from Scotland, um, the Fetch by Robert Aikman, who wasn't Scottish, uh, but the Milk White Dew, the Dew's a Dove, the Cure, Ireland, the Death of the Secret Stole, Souls, Secret Stoles? Anyway, let's not go, go into that. The Green Grave and the Black Grave, I wanted to do that one actually. Uh, Brittany, the Breton legend, not done by many Bretons though. Careful by Edith Wharton, that's a good story. Celui la. So, my um, Outwitting the Devil, oh, this is so, that, yeah, so we have basically the Isle of Man. Brittany, Ireland, Scotland, uh, Wales, Cornwall, and there's some Ga Scots Gaelic ones, I think. Why is it got Gaelic then, not, not Scotland? No, he's got Scotland and Gaelic. So, McPhee's Black Dog, The Butterfly's Wedding by Echen McFadden, The Loch at the Back of the World by Reverend Lachlan MacLean Watt. So, I wanted to do it because I like Celtic things. You may not know. My first degree was in, um, <clears throat> it could have been Celtic, I actually chose to call it Welsh and Irish. I did study Scots Gaelic as well. So, um, so Taro Ushke, in, in proper Manx, Taro Ushke is a, is a bull. Taro is a bull and Ushke is um, uh, water. So Taro Ushke, certainly in Irish as well. Tarav, to say Tarav, Tarav in, the, in Hebridean uh, Gaelic, although in Galloway Gaelic, which is long since gone, which is very, not very far from the Isle of Man, probably went with um, Northern Irish and Manx more. And Isla Gaelic was very similar. They're all clustered together as, as dialects of the same language, really, from the great Gaelic culture province that was um, destroyed, really, in the um, 
well, from the 17th to 18th centuries, great loss of culture there. So I was very keen on all those things. I, I didn't formally ever study Manx. I, I did, and I've only been to the Isle of Man once. And so I'm, on where I was brought up on the Cumbrian coast, it's uh, at its closest point, it's the closest point, it's 26 miles to the Isle of Man. So you see it in on the horizon on a clear day. Sometimes it disappears behind mist and it just looks like there's nothing there. And of course, the Isle of Man is supposed to be the um, the home of the Celtic sea god Manan and Maclear in the Irish or or uh, uh, Manawudan in Welsh. So and it's Manau in Welsh, but Ellen Vanin, Manin, or uh, you know the island of of Man, and um, so and the language there, Manx Gaelic, was very similar to. You know, it's like there weren't different languages. That's the whole point. It's like saying, well, I've just been to Derby, you know. So when you listen to people in Derby, they sound a bit like the East Midlands, you know. They're a bit nothing to me. The sound, you can hear the Midlands in it, but there's the northern tinge to it as well. And then you go a bit further north. You go you go to South Yorks and it's and Yorkshire. It's developed a little bit differently. And then you go to North Yorkshire and that leads you into Westmoreland and Cumberland and Northumberland and that, and then over the border into the, the, you know Roxburghshire and places like that and so it'd be silly to say that these are all separate languages because they're not the dialects and that was the case so we say the Manx language um, which it is now because they've been so separated but you know Manx Manx Gaelic and uh, Irish Gaelic and Scots Gaelic or Gaelic 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 they call it in Munster um, Gaelic I think in uh, in Donegal um, Gaelic, Gaelic in, well, in Hebrides anyway. Um, Gaelic, Gaelic, I think it is in. So you're going to be sick of me saying these. I just sound like I'm making noises like a chicken. Um, but anyway, so I like to do that. So I've only been there once, and it was a beautiful, beautiful day. And we sailed across uh, on a, the Waverley from Whitehaven. Now, there used to be regular, back in the day, there'd be regular boats going from Whitehaven to Dublin and Drogheda and Belfast and um, uh, Douglas on the Isle of Man. And, but no longer. Those days have gone. Pity, I think. It took ages to get there, even though it's only 26 miles. You think, well, you could have driven that in, in not very long at all. But uh, it takes a little while. But it was good. I liked it. And it's a funny place. And so you can see what I've tried to do with the accents there. So if you... So the Isle of Man is in the middle of the north of the Irish Sea. Uh, I think it's slightly closer to the, the Cumbrian English coast. But but the fe main ferry goes from Liverpool. And I think it was settled. No, settled. I think they learned their English from people from Liverpool because... Manx English has a distinctive Scouse flair. It's not as Scousey as, as uh, Liverpool English, but it definitely sounds a bit like that. So that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to kind of be a little bit Scouse, but not too Scouse. And then and then we have McRae, who's um, one of my um, general purpose Scots accents, who, who could come from anywhere, from Fife or, um, or, or nowhere, anywhere and nowhere, that's the truth. But we always talk about these accents and... Uh, we don't please everybody, anybody. Most people don't mind, I don't think. Anyway, I haven't recorded. I had to record tonight because I've run out of stuff. Usually I set things up in advance, but I've had a terrible, terrible cold. It went into an ear infection. The tinnitus is still pretty loud, but it was unbearable. I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I just actually wanted to jump in the river for about four nights. And, um, but I didn't. Um, 
and it's slightly better today. We'll see how it is after having these headphones on, but there we are. So, um, and I, I went because I was due to go down to the UK Ghosts Story Festival, which I did do, uh, organised by a guy called Alex Davis. So thank you, Alex, for organising that. And there were there was a whole bunch of people there, and it was mainly a it was more a writing festival. If you think of um, uh, the, the, the folk horror revival stuff, struggles to go ahead now. But that was there were people performing at folk horror revival, either doing plays or stories or music, where it wasn't particularly like that. It was very much a writerly event, and lots, most of the people in the audience were aspiring writers or people who write. So that was nice being amongst people who write because you could talk about what you do, what you don't do. And then there were a panel of, um, there were different panels, author interviews, a whole bunch of successfully successful writers. Now, they weren't all strictly ghost stories, but there was some kind of supernatural element to the story, I think. There was a lot of witch lit. Apparently, that's the thing. Witches are very big at the moment. So, um, and, you know, it's really interesting listening to people. The kind of two um, that I gelled with most, that is to say, that I thought, oh, my, I love these. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it all, and, and, and I don't want to... Um, but there are certain people you just think, oh, yeah, yeah, I really get where you're coming from. So one of them was... Um, a guy called Nick Freeman who chaired a panel. Now, I just bought a little book called Little Blue Frame Flames, not Frames, Little Blue Flames, and Other Uncanny Tales by A.M. Burridge. Now, you may remember that we've done a few A.M. Burridge stories, done the classics, really, the waxwork, the sweeper, and Smee. Um, I think I've done, I may have done one or two more, but I, I bought this, I thought, I saw it, and I thought, yes, I've got to have that edited by Nick Freeman. I was reading the night before, I think I got it on the Friday. I can't remember what day I got it anyway. And I was reading the introduction written by Nick Freeman. I was thinking, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. I thought, yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And there I went down and there was a panel chaired by him. I thought, wow. So I, I enjoyed, I thought he had a lot of really sensible things to say. Not sensible, but really informative. And then... As a writer I hadn't come across before, Kerry Hadley Price from the Black Country, and, and this was really important because the Black Country is a part of the West Midlands. If you, if you know it, you'll know it. And uh, uh, but it it is uh, it has its own real cultural identity. And she talked about the importance of place. Now, place, of course, is very important to me when I'm writing my stories of Cumbria, uh, and um, and not necessarily the pretty bits either. Um, and so that was really important. And she did a workshop called Psychogeography. I haven't got time to go into what psychogeography is if you don't know, but if you do know, I'm really big into psychogeography anyway. So I loved that workshop. And I thought, you know, you may, and I think I get exactly where you're coming from. So I bought her book, uh, one of her books. I hadn't read any before, God's Country, but, but I like it. I opened it. It has a very particular narrative voice, which I'm enjoying. And then, of course, it's kind of the, uh, and I don't want to skip over anybody else and say, oh, but f I'm just saying my own, um, uh, what, 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 what attuned to me was uh, Andrew Michael Hurley. So Andrew Michael Hurley is the author of The Loney. It won loads and loads of awards, came out, I think, 2015, 2014. And then Starvaker, uh, which I've, um, just well, I've read that a couple of years ago, to be honest. Uh, and and he's got another one, I think, called Dark Country. 
uh, and I haven't read that, but I will. And the interesting thing is he, again, place. So the Loney is set in a particular part of the Lancashire, North Lancs coastline, sort of south of Morecambe on the coast there. Uh, and um, my Sheila's dad is from Preston and she spent some, she's born in Carlisle, luckily for her, like me. And, um, but she uh, was brought up in Lancaster, so she loves everything Lancastrian. And um, so I, I kind of, I've, that's, I've absorbed a bit of that from her. And I really like, particularly, I, do, I know North Lancs better, it's closer to us, of course. Uh, and so, yeah, that place. And then he said um, how the, 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 the Dark Country, and I hope I'm not misquoting the title because it, it's very rude if I was doing that, um, is set up in the Trough of Boland. And I've been there a few times. I actually really like it around there. Uh, and there's fantastic towns like Clitheroe and that. But I remember the first time I went there was when I was working in the 90s for the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And we went up looking at ways of protecting they were doing a lot of work protecting the nest of hen harriers, which were very rare, up on the heather moors, and they were being persecuted by gamekeepers, really. Um, and this this is a controversial subject, and some people may. People have different views about it, you know. But it was about how to protect those, and we'd been pioneering cameras on nests in Wales at the time, and so it was about picking, and I, I kind of like, I was invited to Greece as well, and up to Scotland, um, up to Aviemore, uh, to, and so I became a kind of a little bit of a, a flash-in-the-pan expert for in that subject for about a year, and then that faded to my true obscurity. But um, so Trophy Boland, that was my first time I went there, but Sheila and I have wandered across it uh, since then, and so it was... So that place, that type of place. And I, I loved his talk, and I cheekily asked him if I could narrate one of his stories in the podcast. I went, I've got a copy of The Lonely, but I bought another because I wanted a signed copy. And I said when, when he was doing it. We would, he was also talking about ambiguity in ghost stories, which, I, you know, sometimes is something I talk about as being really important, uh, or supernatural stories, but we haven't got time to go into that here. Um, and so I said, oh, could I, yeah, being cheeky. You know, would you mind? And I think he'd heard of the podcast. He saw you do like M.I. James. I said, well, do do M.I. James. We've been talking about Robert Aikman. He'd been talking about Robert Aikman. I said, and Shirley Jackson. I said, yeah, do those as well. So you never know, maybe it will. Now, so that leads me on to this whole issue of the stories that I can narrate. People will say to me, I wish you'd do The Omen. Or can you do The Exorcist? Now, there is issues about word count as well. So, you know, a novel, to, to do a novel, I've done novels, of course. I've done Frankenstein, I've done Dracula, I've done Rebecca, um, any other novels, novel and stuff. But they, they're, a lot, they're a big piece of work and they take months, really, to narrate. And um, there are problems with that because um, people, what happens is people like the full novel, but they don't want to... Um, they don't much like being drip-fed it, really, serialised. I mean, some people do, but um, most people will wait for the full audio book, you know, so that means I'm doing all this work and there's no response. You know, I'm not, I'm not, and there's issues with that anyway. So length is one thing. The other big thing is copyright. So with The Omen, The Exorcist, um, these are very much in copyright. So I, or, you know, let's do Salem's Lot or The Shining, you know. I would love to do them, but... 
They are tied up. They, these make a lot of money for people. So they're not going to have a little pipsqueak like me do it. And they say, right, you can do it, Mr. Walker. They may be polite enough to call me Mr. Walker. But that'll be um, $500,000 for the privilege. I go, well, I, I probably will only make about £47 off it. You know, because I do... Um, anyway, you know that. So, so it's a problem. So if, if you know if you've got this great, oh, I'd love to, why doesn't Tony do, you know, some, the ritual, you know, or some ultra modern but really good, why doesn't Tony do that? There are legalities about it. So it might be that, that, that um, Andrew Michael Hurley won't be able to get his agent to agree. And, I, yeah, I'm not dissing that because uh, it could be that they've already sold the audiobook rights and the audiobook producers might go, we're not going to, what? We're going to produce this. We're going to sell it. And you're going to allow this bloke to do it for free on YouTube? I don't think so. So uh, it might be. Let's let's have our fingers crossed. But um, be aware that there are lots of legalities in these things. So that's why I can't always respond to do the stories that you want. Um, for all sorts of reasons. But um, those are some of them. So I'm, short, I'm sorry this is a really short one, but you can probably hear my throat isn't. It's going to give up in a minute. Uh, some people would say that's a good thing. People who live with me might say, do you know what? It'd be good if you just shut up for a day. Um, I may be being unkind. So I hope you're all well. I am better than I was over the weekend. I've honestly wanted to jump in the river. Um, <clears throat> but um, I do feel a bit better now. So I hope you're all well. I'm sorry it's so short. I had to do something and this is it. Take care, everybody. Oh, yes, yeah, something else. Other people say, look, I don't like ads. I love having these stories. I want to fall asleep to them, but I don't like ads. Mm, problem. Well, um, and the, so that if you listen to the podcast, I don't choose the ads. I don't profile you and think, yeah, you're the sort of person who wants cat food or you're going to vote for so-and-so. Uh, I don't do that. It's, it's the companies that do that, either YouTube or Spotify or, or whoever. I don't do that. Both YouTube and Spotify very kindly. Actually, Spotify haven't paid me yet, but they promised me they will. Um, but YouTube, YouTube certainly do. They pay me for those ads. If you go premium on, say, on those, and you don't hear ads, they give me a little cut of that as well. So that works for me. If you if you want to uh, have ad free, you can go premium. That's fine. Um, if you want another way though, is if you become a patron. Become a patron of mine, and for $5 a month, you can get access to all these stories. I'll, put, I'll keep them up on, um, on the cloud, and you can download them all, and you can have them ad-free. And so that might be worth doing if you don't want the ads and you would just want to queue them up to fall asleep to. And, of course, the other thing I should say is, um, yeah, and if you don't want them with the commentary... Look at the look at the compilations I do. I do do compilations as well of of stories, usually three, four, five, six hours. So there is no. So if you don't, if you're one of the people that doesn't like the commentaries, you can get you can uh, get them commentary free. I realise now if you don't like the commentaries, you won't have actually heard me say that. So, but anyway, um, but and if you don't like the ads, consider becoming a patron. Then you have all the stories you want to download, to copy, to put onto your Walkman, if there are such things. So that was what I was going to say. Um, and my voice has lasted. Anyway, thank you, everybody. Thank you, thank you. All right, bye.
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some dies, come back. Don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, don't they? Isn't that so? Come back.